Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I'm Rita Cosby. Russia has been intensifying its brutal attacks on Ukrainian civilians as it's imposing martial law on its illegally annexed areas in Ukraine. And President Zelensky is pleading for more weaponry from America and others. So what is the latest on the ground and what should the U.S. do now? Joining us now is General Blaine Holt. He is a retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General, also a former C-17 combat commander and a former U.S. Deputy Military Representative to NATO. General Holt, great to have you here on this podcast, especially at such an important time. Oh, absolutely is. And it's great to be here with you. It's an honor to speak with you today, Rita. You know, so much is going on. This new news, of course, about Putin imposing martial law on these, you know, quote, I say quote, because quote, annexed areas, nobody is recognizing them as part of Russia, but Putin and the Russian sovereign area there, you know, Russia itself, I mean. So as we're looking at all of that, what does this martial law do? And how does it change the dynamics? So what we're seeing is an absolute escalation in the depravity and the level of ferocity in these war crimes that Russia is committing against civilian populations. It's reported, and somewhat falsely, but not intentionally falsely, that these populations in these regions are sympathetic to Russia. But over the course of this war, that has changed dramatically. And when the reason that Putin would enact martial law is to absolutely lock down these people and control them, because I would expect that they're very nervous that when people learn the Ukrainians are on the offensive coming to liberate those regions, that the people themselves could unite, organize, and create a resistance that would make it even harder for the Russians. Talk about strategically where these areas are, too, and why they're so important to Russia. Sure. So it starts in the northeastern part of Ukraine, where you've got Luhansk, and then you come down the eastern side of the country with Donetsk, then Zaporizhia, that's where the largest nuclear power plant is that we worry about all the time. And then to the southern part near Odessa is Kherson, which starts with a K, but it's that crescent. And what the Russians would really like to do is to keep that offensive going right across and closing out their coastline by getting Odessa as well. And it doesn't look like they're going to be able to do that anytime soon. Do you believe Russia trying to impose this martial law on the so-called annex areas? Is this all psychological? Is this much more of sort of sending a message to the Russian people, too? It does. It sends a message to all players, even the Russian army, that Putin has made a decision that he and the new general that he's selected are going to actually uptick the aggressiveness of this operation from the Russian side. But I really do think that the Russians are very concerned that Ukrainian resistance in those regions could actually usher in a much easier time for Ukraine to come liberate those areas. And what we're starting to learn with Kherson and this so-called evacuation of 60,000 people coming out of civilians coming out of Kherson and going further south down into Crimea, being relocated there, 
I think it's for that reason. They don't want to have a potential insurgency at the exact same time they're fighting the Ukrainian army. And if those people went unwillingly against their will, that is another war crime that's against the Geneva Conventions as well. No, so there's a lot of layers to this. Absolutely, there are. And it's getting very dangerous. So let's look at what happens if Kherson does fall and the Ukrainians take it. And it looks like they're going to. The Russians probably are going to be looking at a massive escalation like they did after the Kerch Bridge got hit, the bridge between mainland Russia and Crimea. What I see happening is after this week is over, because at the exact same time, you've got this national congress in China going on and Vladimir Putin has this relationship to Xi Jinping, and he certainly doesn't want to make Xi very upset when he's trying to get his third term. So I think the Russians and that general will try to just manage this week. But if Kherson falls, it's anybody's guess about how ferocious the response from Russia is going to be, because Putin is going to be up against the ropes. He is going to have an inner circle that's not only looking for answers, but looking for his neck. You bring up a great point. How much is the world also watching some of these other players like China and others? Well, you know, it's really all interrelated. And that's the thing that kind of gets your attention. We have been loosely talking for the last year about the potentiality to have World War III. And sometimes those are really poorly constructed statements and they're a little bit verbose. But I do think that we have to be very careful about how the geopolitical tectonic plates are starting to click together. You've got conflict in China with their economy absolutely falling apart at a time when Xi wants to be a totalitarian dictator for life and is menacing Taiwan and threatening Taiwan. You've got North Korea, which is absolutely a part of the puzzle and is now actively building up its missile and nuclear program, threatening South Korea and Japan. And then let's not forget the Middle East, where we see former friends like Saudi Arabia falling away from us and Israel being threatened even more as Iran looks to get its nuclear weapons and is actually openly threatened Israel. And Syria is Syria and there's no cakewalk, but it's all linked together and everything crosses through Russia and Beijing. What about also the fact that Russia has been using these Iranian drones, these kamikaze drones? How does that change the dynamic and also clearly shows that they're working very closely with Iran? They really are. That meeting that Putin had in June with Raisi and the Ayatollah netted this drone deal. What we see all the time now on TV is these kamikaze drones called the Shahed-136. It's a very distinctive triangular shape. So you can't miss it when you see it in the photographs. It's interesting that Iran disavows any use of that on the battlefield because they have a sanction against them to be exporting arms to anyone. And yet they're exporting arms to Russia, which proves that they don't believe in and will not adhere to international agreements, which then should tell us that trying to give them billions of dollars for some sort of imaginary nuclear weapons deal is absolutely a fool's errand. Yeah, it just shows that they are clearly playing all sides, and it looks like clearly playing this administration. They really are. And what's even more dangerous is, you know, I understand we're disappointed in Saudi Arabia pursuing oil production cuts with OPEC, but that is absolutely not ground 
to trash what has been over decades a very good relationship that has served our nation quite well in trying to maintain stability in something so vital to our interests in the Middle East with energy and our ally Israel. General, I want to ask you, too, about there's been a bit of controversy in the last day or two. Kevin McCarthy came out and said that there shouldn't necessarily be a blank check for Ukraine. Some people took that as, well, maybe if the Republicans take over, they'll restrict. But then he clarified the remarks and basically said, no, you know, we just want to make sure there's accountability, that the arms actually get to the Ukrainian military, that there's accountable, that we have an understanding of where things go. What are your thoughts about that and also just sort of where the U.S. is headed with all of this? Sure. So this is a really important question, and I wish that Leader McCarthy would be a little bit more specific with what he has in mind. It's important to support Ukraine. I think that we understand that that's in our best interest. And after all, from a moral perspective, Ukraine certainly stood shoulder to shoulder with us in our wars in Afghanistan. And so being there for a NATO partner is important. But a blank check is also not something that we can even afford to offer any country on the planet right now at a time when not only is our own economy up in flames, but we don't know where the next Ukraine is going to be. And we may have to pivot in a whole new direction, could be in Asia with Taiwan, could be in the Middle East. And so, you know, giving up all of our national treasure is not in our best interest either. So what I think he really should spell out is that we have to have a full accounting and accountability of where every nickel is intended to go and why it's intended to go there. Now, let's set the money part aside for just one second. The other part of this that we've got to have an accountability on is how much of our own weapons and our own vital supplies of frontline fighting units in the United States and around the world are we depleting ourselves? And are we depleting ourselves at a dangerous level? I think it's a valid question. and I think it should be answered in Congress and congressional oversight should be asking about readiness rates. You know, are American forces still trained and equipped to fight the wars that they might have to fight? Or are we in a vulnerable situation now because of what we've had to support in Ukraine? And then the last piece to that is I'm watching very carefully how how we're draining our strategic petroleum reserve. You know, we are nearly at the halfway point of complete depletion of that. And that is what we have to have for insurance should our country fall into a national security crisis. How big of a danger is the depletion by the Biden administration of the strategic petroleum reserves from a national security and international security standpoint? It's absolutely huge. You know, you think about the capacity of the reserve is about 728 million barrels. By comparison, China has a strategic petroleum reserve that's filled to the brim at nearly a billion barrels. Ours is halfway now. If we were to be cut off by energy from all sources, the blessing that we have is we can certainly produce energy here. Even though this administration cut our nose off despite our face, with the Keystone XL severing. However, we do have the ability. We just can't refill it overnight. We can't repurchase it overnight. So you can't just magically fill up all these tanks down there. And the more we deplete it, and we are depleting it, the more vulnerable we become. And what we're transmitting is what we did after Kabul. We're transmitting national weakness. And these are the things that always encourage the adversaries and enemies of the United States. 
So you're deeply concerned about that from a projection, first of all, a realistic projection, because we need that to supply us. And B, it's also put our allies, you think about it, they're in a very perilous situation as we're heading into what could be a cold winter. That's exactly right. You know, we're already seeing the first signs of unity falling apart inside of Europe. They're facing protests in those capitals every single weekend about the energy crisis, the reckless sanctions regime on Russia that was not thought out for the long term. And the United States, to add to this, has not come in as a partner to say, whoa, 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 if you're going to do these sanctions, we have to increase our own oil production. We have to increase gas production because then we're projecting strength strength of the alliance, what I see is the opposite. I see the Eastern European countries looking to Russia and saying, forget it, we're going to go ahead and buy gas because our national survival is important here. You see governments like Liz Truss's on the edge of collapse because their people are upset. Macron is in the same bucket. You've even got politicians in Germany that are saying what happens in Ukraine is vastly more important than the German voter. And then with the economics of all of this, we're starting to see signs that of deindustrialization because they don't have the energy to run these factories and these companies, and they're actually looking at coming to the United States. That might sound like a blessing, but I can promise you having completely a NATO that's not unified, that doesn't have cohesion, is not in this country's best interest. Yeah. And meantime, our president, as he's talking about tapping into the reserves again, as we know, he's also talking about windmills and talking about electric cars. It seems just completely disconnected. And, you know, the oil industry is going, help us. Well, that's the problem. And the big secret here is, is that this concept that the bankers seem to love a lot these days on the climate change front ESG, environmental social governance, putting in all these regulations and restrictions so that if you're making something that causes carbon, like, I don't know, a barrel of oil, we don't like you anymore. Well, what happens is, is the capital flows don't go to investing in new fossil fuel creation, and we're not ready to make the jump. And the marketing here is not correct. It doesn't match up with the reality. So windmills don't work. They're not going to get you what you need. And EVs are about the dirtiest little thing that you could have in the world because you've got all these dangerous things like lithium and cobalt that have to be mined by, and in a lot of cases, slave labor in Africa. And they're largely fired by coal plants because that's where the electricity comes from. So we have a journey to make in actually transitioning to better energy but we don't have to do it with brute force and regulations that, you know, make what we're making a barrel of oil bad. That's what we're going to be on for a long time to come. And we are blessed with a wealth of that and natural gas in our nation. Natural gas is also going to contribute to a hydrogen economy, which is a much cleaner, easier to produce energy than electric. And we know from the technology that's rising that that's where we're going. And honestly, to bring it back full circle, that's where national security comes from. When we have those things nailed down, we are at our strongest and our most prosperous. And that's when our adversaries go, you know what, we're not even going to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. It puts us in a position of strength, which the U.S. should always be, I believe. And I know you do, too. General Holt, I want to also just kind of end talking again about where things are headed in Ukraine, because in the middle of all this, Zelensky is, of course, asking for more air defense systems from the West. They are, as you talked about, going on the offense. Where do you see things headed and what else should we be giving them? I mean, in many ways, so many people are talking about this drip, drip, drip. 
that maybe had we given them some, you know, premier air defenses to begin with, maybe we wouldn't have had to spend all this time. Maybe they could have kicked out Russia immediately. But it's been this sort of, you know, slow sort of like spigot. Here we go. Here we go. And obviously, it seems a little too little too late. Although the Ukrainians have fought very valiantly and seem to be having the momentum, which is great. Yep. The Ukrainians, listen, if all they're left with is rocks, they're going to go throw rocks at tanks. That's the spirit that they have. And they've really held together. And you have to admire that no matter what happens. But to your big point, and we've been saying it all year long, is the logistics only count if they get there on time. I'm a logistician. I'm a nerd on this stuff. And I will tell you that when your army needs bacon, beans, and bullets, they mean now. (laughs) They don't mean later because... I can't help but think how different it could have been if we had front-loaded the air defense systems. You know, remember the big controversy was no-fly zone. We're not going to have no-fly zones. That's off the table. We're not doing it. That'll escalate. Okay, well, (laughs) great. Well, then let's give them a no-fly zone on the ground by putting in these systems that now we're putting in. But how many lives might have been saved had we been more efficient and better thinking on the types of things that were needed there to fend off a brutal Russian air force. You know, I think, too, also President Biden's verbiage of saying, hey, if it's a minor incursion, then maybe we won't do anything. The minute he said that, it sort of conveyed the sentiment of at least this administration's policy. And how do you think that that affected Putin at the beginning? A great deal. But that was the second beginning, the first beginning was starting to show some weakness at the Alaskan summit with the Chinese when they first sat down. Then the fall of Kabul had to increase the Russian appetite. They had already started to flow forces up towards Ukraine after Alaska. But the fall of Kabul then was probably the green light. Oh, yeah, we're going to plan and do this. And then you get to that place where it's like, well, you know, what's an incursion? Let's see what the incursion might be. That absolutely was such encouragement, in my view, in my personal opinion. Others may have a different opinion. But to me, those words, I felt that night that, well, this is what's going to now happen. And, you know, we've got the same national security team that we had when they took their seats. I think that they're not above review or oversight. And I think that we should hold these leaders that are making us vulnerable to account. And I don't think there's anything inappropriate about Congress stepping in and reviewing what has, you know, how we have been imperiled and made vulnerable in the past two years. Yeah. Do you think there needs to be a full review of maybe some bad calls and obviously what led to some of the bad calls? If for nothing else, I think that the nation owes a generation, two generations, in fact, of military personnel that fought their hearts out, lost lives, broke families, lost limbs for wars that went to an abrupt place called nowhere. I think that alone in the fall of Kabul warrants scrutiny about how we send our nation to war, what the exit strategies are, and how we go about doing that. Because clearly, clearly, when you look at what happened in Kabul, we didn't learn anything from that last helicopter leaving Saigon. Yeah, that was just heartbreaking, as we all know, the pullout, of course. And we watched the images, especially as I think about with Kabul, with all of them chasing after the plane and so many Americans and our allies left behind, which is just heartbreaking. I agree with you that we need to know what happened, who made the calls 
and make sure that our military are appreciated and our allies, too, also as well. General Holt, really great to have you here. And everybody, by the way, be sure to share and download this podcast, such an important topic on so many different areas and such a great informed guest. General Blaine Holt, thank you for joining us. Thank you also for all you do to keep America and the world safe and especially for your great decades of service to our country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rita. It was a pleasure. And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight, on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America. <laughs>